Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Before we get started today, we have one quick note. In this episode, we'll be discussing substance abuse and mental health crises. If you or someone you know needs help, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988. We have even more resources linked in our show notes. Okay, on to the show. Hey, I'm John Quillen Hill, and this is The Weeds. Earlier this month, New York City Mayor Eric Adams made national headlines with a bold policy announcement. This directive lays out an expedited step-by-step process for involuntarily transporting a person experiencing a mental health crisis to a hospital for evaluation. It's an expansion of the city's involuntary hold policy. It explicitly states that it is appropriate to use this process when a person refuses voluntary assistance and it appears that they are suffering from mental illness and are a danger to themselves due to an inability to meet their basic needs. An involuntary hold or involuntary commitment is when someone is hospitalized against their own wishes. The holds vary state to state and city to city, but in most places, a person can be put under an involuntary hold if they pose a danger to themselves or to others. But this one's a little different. In short, we are confirming that a person's inability to meet basic needs to the extent that it poses a risk of harm is part of the standard for mental health interventions. It lowers the bar for involuntary holds. And there's been a strong response to it, too. There's already a legal challenge, and it could be a strain on an already threadbare system. We currently have 35,000 psychiatric beds for a population of over 330 million people. It is harder to get into a psychiatric bed in the United States than it is to get into Harvard University. That's Amanda Postilnik. I'm a professor of law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law and a program director at the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital. So how did we end up with such a stark gap in availability of care? It's a story that dates back over 200 years. In the 1800s, the mentally ill the physically disabled, elderly, 
and otherwise alcohol-addicted or indigent and unhoused people were often lumped together Mm. as one group of the indigent poor, Mm. as people who were either objects of pity or revulsion, but not separated into distinct groups based on specific needs. As such, they were often thrown together in poor farms like workhouses. So a person with a psychiatric condition, a person who was blind or physically disabled, or an elderly person without relatives to care for them, might find themselves all thrown together in a workhouse or poorhouse where they were required to work as much as physically possible for them in exchange for some very minimal level of support and really with no option for getting out of those kinds of places either. Mm. Often these poor farms were co-located with prison farms where there was forced prison labor. And this is also continuous with a centuries-long history of putting people with mental illnesses into prisons. Indeed, the foundation of the prison as a carceral system for correcting deviant behavior shares deep roots with the problem of what to do with people with mental illnesses who were not able to exist in community. Eventually, in uh, the 1800s, there starts to be a greater recognition that people with mental illnesses might have illnesses that require treatment, and also, in general, a move of social reformers trying to bring greater compassion to the treatment of people with all kinds of challenges, whether it be psychiatric or disability-related or poverty-related. And along with this rise of sympathy and progressivism, we start to see the development of a more humane concept of the asylum, because asylum is supposed to mean safety, security, place of comfort and peace. Asylums, unfortunately, along with their therapeutic mission, which was carried out in some places and at some times, became places of coercion and confinement and frequently terror. When did we start to see reform in the mental health care system? Uh, I'm I'm just wondering, are there any standout moments? So one of the greatest progressive reformers was Dorothea Dix, and she did a lot of groundwork to pave the way for this proposal called a bill for the indigent insane. So in 1854, through her advocacy, she got both houses of Congress to pass this country's first mental health bill. Mm. It was supposed to set aside large tracts of federal land to create compassionate housing and refuge for people with mental illnesses. And it was vetoed by President Franklin Pierce. He believed that the federal government should not be in the business of social welfare or medical care, and that that was the job of the states. Okay, I want to zoom ahead a little bit. So in 1946, President Truman signed the National Mental Health Act into law, and that was significant in part because it established the National Institute of Mental Health. And then about a decade and a half later, JFK also signed mental health legislation into law, and that was somewhat personal because a sister, Rosemary, was given a lobotomy and then sent to an institution. Can you talk about that legislation that Kennedy signed? In 1963, President Kennedy signed into law a piece of legislation that he'd really advocated for, a community care bill that was intended to establish care in the community to help the population of people who were living in asylums, which at that time was huge, it was about 500,000 people, 
to transition to care in the community at community residential centers or supported with a network of assistive guidance and structure while living at home. Under this legislation, custodial mental institutions will be replaced by therapeutic centers. It should be possible within a decade or two to reduce the number of patients in mental institutions by 50% or more. And there were federal grants to establish these care homes. And in truth, it never rolled out the way it was intended to. Mm. Fewer than half these projected homes were ever built. None of them were ever fully funded. So although the program was well-meant and really did help a lot of people become deinstitutionalized, it also failed to provide enough support to enough people. And so there were some really legitimate reasons for criticizing it, for saying that it hadn't lived up to its promise and its potential. Then when President Reagan came into office and his administration took a look at challenges of care for people with mental illnesses in the U.S., they brought to that their lens that local-level actors are the best suited to attack local-level problems, like what's Mm. happening on the street in your neighborhood, and a strong orientation toward states' rights and small federal government. Mm. So the funding that had remained for these community programs that was still being distributed through the federal government was returned to the states in the form of block grants. But most of these block grants actually never went to help people with severe mental illness who were either still in institutions or who were struggling in the community without adequate care. They were unrestricted block grants. And so the states could use the money for whatever it was needed for. And, you know, states always need money. Further, people with mental illnesses don't have a very strong lobby. Mm. There are a lot of people who will let their representatives hear about it if funding is cut for schools or farm aid or even infrastructure. But there aren't a lot of people who let their representatives hear about it when that new community mental health center isn't built in their backyard. So interestingly, if you look at the decline of the institutionalized population and the decline of funding for the institutionalized population from about 1965 onward, you can see an almost one-for-one increase in the rise of the incarcerated population. And I'm not saying that they're the same people. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the same people who are being cross-institutionalized, but a lot of them are Mm -hmm. because as a person has no support in the community and also no ability to check themselves into a psychiatric hospital because the number of beds in psychiatric hospitals is less than 10% of what it was in the 1960s. These people do wind up increasingly intersecting the criminal justice system. They wind up on the street. And then our prison system becomes a mental health care system of last resort or more like a mental health dumping ground. Is there an argument to be made that there needs to be more federal involvement? It seems like mental health is still something that is very much on the state and local level, even the county level. Is there a push at all for more federal involvement? Would that be a solution or is that not an answer? There are so many parts to this problem that it can profitably be addressed from many angles. One 
is simply to prioritize Mm -hmm. mental health care, particularly for people with the most serious mental illnesses. When we talk about mental health, it encompasses almost everything in our lives. And yet the challenges faced by a child with an abusive parent who therefore is psychologically struggling are almost totally different than the challenges faced by a person with a psychotic disorder who needs urgent medical attention. Mm. It's all part of mental health. So what will most help the mental health emergency that's happening in the United States today? You'll get really different answers depending on which segment of the problem you're focusing on. There's no doubt that more money is extremely important. Allocating more money at the federal level for states to have dedicated mental health programming in addition to the federal funding that's already provided directly through Medicare and Medicaid, particularly Medicaid, would be a tremendous help. At the same time, some of the greatest innovation is seen at the local level Mm. with advocates and policymakers pushing for outreach teams rather than using our police as default first responders for everything, peer support, community living arrangements that can provide supportive and transitional housing. I'm not a policymaker, but it seems to me like the most beneficial combination that could exist is innovation at the local level involving people who are living and experiencing these issues, whether they are professionals, patients, family members, other people in their network, combined with more federal money and more prioritization at the state level so that you have knowledge and expertise meeting resources where they can help people the most. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of involuntary holds. What is the legality there when it comes to involuntary holds? How is it not a violation of rights? All of our rights are a balance between individual liberty and the need to exist in community or society. So it's it's often said, my right to extend my fist ends at the tip of your nose. <laughs> Even the right to free speech is a balance between individual expression and reasonable restrictions, like not yelling fire in a crowded theater. People with mental illnesses have all the same rights that every other person does, and they should. At the same time, if a person becomes an immediate danger to others or to themselves, at that point, the state's interest in safety and order is said to briefly, partially, take precedence over the individual's right to liberty. The current regime across the United States is that if an individual is an immediate danger to themselves or others, they can be taken into psychiatric care for an evaluation. There are 24-hour holds and 72-hour holds. So after 72 hours, if a person is determined to be dangerous to themselves or others, then the state can move or the hospital system can move for a longer hold. A hold past the 72-hour mark also requires a judicial proceeding. Now, this could lead to a long-term inpatient stay. At the same time, I want to point out that that's unlikely and rare for the following reason. In the late 1950s, early 1960s, we had 500,000 psychiatric beds in this country for about 190 million people. Mm. We currently have 
35,000 psychiatric beds for a population of over 330 million people. Oh, wow. We are, wow. Wow, Wow, that is not enough. Yeah. That's not enough. No, it is not enough. It is tragically not enough. There are people who present themselves to psychiatric hospitals every single day or whose loved ones have finally been able to get them through the door and they get turned away. And it's not because the doctors and nurses don't want to help them. It's because they literally can't. People who need emergency psychiatric care wind up spending days and days in paper gowns sleeping in emergency rooms while social workers and doctors and nurses scramble to find beds for them. It is harder to get into a psychiatric bed in the United States than it is to get into Harvard University. Wow. So at the same time that the civil liberties questions involved with involuntary treatment are critical, I also want to say that the fear of coerced psychiatric care, which should never happen to anyone, to be clear, and it's a real concern, should also be understood in the context of the fact that most people begging for psychiatric care can't get it. And of course, there are people that do need help and may not necessarily know the resources or to ask for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those involuntary holds versus people who are saying, I really need this help and there are no resources. It it feels so lose-lose. Yeah. In fact, New York is a perfect example of both. And then some ways that it has innovated around both sides of the problem. In late 1990s, around 1998 or 99, a man named Andrew Goldstein pushed a woman named Kendra Webdale in front of a subway train, killing her. He had untreated paranoid schizophrenia. And you may have heard of him and of this case because in the wake of Ms. Webdale's death, the New York State Legislature passed a first-of-its-kind law called Kendra's Law in her memory to support assisted outpatient treatment for people with psychiatric illnesses. Kendra's Law is a symbol of renewed hope for all people affected by mental illness. It represents hope that the untreated mentally ill who suffer needlessly will be able to live fuller, more productive lives within their communities. So that somebody who has a severe psychiatric illness and who is not compliant with their medication can be subject to an outpatient treatment order that requires them to take their medication so that they remain safe in the community. And this was criticized at the time as a violation of civil rights and an excess coercion, but at the same time also hailed as a useful middle ground that a person could be required to take their medication at home or in a community setting rather than forced into inpatient treatment Mm -hmm. against their will. Here's the irony of Kendra's law. Andrew Goldstein had presented himself to numerous psychiatric hospitals, emergency rooms around the New York area in the days leading up to his killing of Ms. Webdale. And he said, I'm dangerous. Help me. Please help me. And he had even pushed a lady in the supermarket. And the doctors said, you know, you're so much more coherent than some of the other people who were coming in. We don't think you're an an immediate emergency. And it's not that the doctors made a bad decision although, you know, we know it didn't work out. It's that when they have to triage so many incredibly ill people on a daily basis, they're guaranteed to run into these challenges where somebody who needed to be admitted couldn't be admitted. So here's the good part of Kendra's law. Mm -hmm. It provided funding for a lot more community services. Mm. Because if you're going to say that people in the community 
are required to follow certain medication and treatment regimes. You actually have to have teams out there in the community, social workers and psychiatrists, who can visit people, who can follow up with them appropriately, who can make sure that they're able to get their medication from a pharmacy. And that also was a first of its kind across the country. And so although it was unfortunately wrapped up in blame toward the mentally ill and triggered by an unnecessary death, it led to an expansion of resources and an expansion of outpatient community care. And I hope that Mayor Adams' program will have some of the same effects. Amanda Postenik, thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. So there's a continued struggle between civil liberties and ensuring people get the mental health care they need. New York's recent involuntary hold announcement is just the latest example. We'll dig into it more after the break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hey, this is The Weeds. We're back and we're talking about mental health care policy. So... We made another call. My name is Aneri Patani, and I'm a correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Aneri, we're talking about mental health partially because of this recent New York City policy announcement. But first, can you talk to us about another time involuntary holds were making headlines? Can you tell us about when Mayor Ed Koch implemented a similar policy in the 1980s? He had started a new policy essentially to hospitalize people who were mentally ill and homeless, with the idea being, you know, 
if there are individuals who could be a danger to themselves, that they should instead be in psychiatric hospitals, even if they didn't want to be. So one of the first people who was picked up under this new program was a woman named Joyce Brown, though she told officials her name was Billy Boggs. She was picked up under this new law, forced um, into a a psychiatric ward, and she fought back and said, you know, I uh, don't think I should be held. And she got help from the New York Civil Liberties Union to fight against this law. But the real issue is, is that the choice should not be for people to be out on the streets or locked up at Bellevue. Government officials must come to the realization that they have to create the alternatives. Joyce Brown has become a symbol of a failure of government to provide adequate Joyce Brown is a symbol of a city. And her family actually argued in favor of the law during the case. They thought oh, interesting. that, yeah, so, and this is sort of a common theme often where families really want the individual to, to get help. They feel like they can't make it happen in any other way. And so involuntary commitment is a way they think to keep their loved one safe. And so her sisters argued for it. She argued against. And essentially, the court ultimately found that the evidence wasn't clear that she had a mental illness. But even if she did, she wasn't shown to be a danger, which is Mm. what that law required, which is what a lot of involuntary commitment laws require. Can you explain this policy that Mayor Adams is instituting and how it's different from what's going on right now? The biggest difference is the standard that normally has to be used. Generally, it's someone has to be a danger to themselves or others. So they're either going to physically hurt themselves, um, often they're at risk of suicide, or they're going to, you know, cause violence to other folks or, or harm people in some way. In Mayor Adams' case, what the administration is saying that anyone who is mentally ill can be removed as long as they display an inability to meet basic living needs. Mm. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there's been some sort of dangerous act recently or that they're a danger to others. It's a much lower, sort of broader standard of not being able to meet basic living needs and could be applied to a much broader swath of people than normal involuntary commitment laws are. I suppose some things are basic, like food, shelter, but there are also things that, you know, people who are functioning in day-to-day lives that someone else may see and think, you are not performing a basic function of something you need to do. And I think that criticism has come up with the more recent policy and with previous policies, too, where there's some sort of like there's a lot of room for interpretation. So when we go back to the Billy Boggs case, Joyce Brown, who is the woman uh, who was involuntarily committed, her argument was, I like living the way I live. Mm -hmm. And, And some people call it eccentric, but like I have a right to have this lifestyle. And that was sort of a big point in her case and continues to be kind of the point today where what does it mean to have your basic needs met or to be livable? Or is there a difference between people thinking something is unusual or disapproving of it and it being illegal? Are we likely to see legal challenges to this policy? There is a consortium of mental health advocacy groups in New York that have already sort of filed a challenge. They're adding it on to a pre-existing case, but they're Mm -hmm. challenging this new um, policy from the Adams administration It's a bunch of different groups, but including the New York Lawyers for Public Interest and other advocates who say this could be a violation of civil liberties and that um, they really don't they don't want to see this policy enforced. I think I think one of the things that's interesting to me is um, how this has been framed. Like you do hear a little bit of like, oh, we're getting these people help. But it's also been framed as a solution to homelessness and crime. 
I'm just wondering, are there examples of whether something like this works on those types of issues? And should we even be assuming that, you know, if there's crime happening or if someone is experiencing homelessness, that it's because of mental health issues? It's such a complex question. I think those those three categories, you know, homelessness, crime, and and mental health are often linked and and interact, but not always in the ways that people think, or or it's not so easily framed as, you know, people who are mentally ill are not all violent or likely to hurt someone. And just because someone commits an act of violence doesn't mean they're suffering for, from some mental illness. Of course, mm. they might have some issues going on, but having issues or, or being upset about something is not the same as being diagnosed with a mental illness. And of course, with homelessness, same thing where, you know, a lot of folks who are homeless are suffering from mental illness. Mental illness can be a trigger that leads someone to become homeless, but it's not one in the same. And so in terms of what what works or doesn't work, I think we don't have a great sense of of what works to address all three of these at once. Honestly, some of the programs that have been shown to work are, are outside of the mental health realm. They're things like mm. helping people find affordable housing and housing that doesn't have certain barriers. So a lot of folks on the street are you know using drugs, but a lot of housing programs will not allow people into them unless they are abstinent. Mm. But a lot of people can't you know enter recovery, stop using drugs. Because they are, you know, living on the street and it's hard to get away from that environment or they need, you know, the drugs to stay up all night to ensure their safety. So sometimes getting people housing first has been shown to get them better treatment in terms of mental health or substance use, keep them off the street, reduce crime. But that's not a medical intervention necessarily. Yeah. And I think the intervention aspect is so interesting. And I mean, there's this conversation about the role of police and policing here and if I understand correctly, it's police who would enforce this under the Adams administration, right? The policy in New York allows police or city officials. Mm. So I think some, you know, hospital workers could also qualify under that. But realistically, when you think about who is going to encounter folks living on the street, folks with mental illness, it is more likely that it's going to be law enforcement officers uh, than it is medical staff or other city officials. I'm just thinking about this also, this conversation about who's best equipped to provide services for people having a mental health crisis. I mean, what do we know about that and also the role of police in that? So I think we have seen over many years now that law enforcement police officers are often the individuals responding to mental health crises, but they're not necessarily the right people to be doing that. And I think we hear that from advocates, but we also hear that from officers themselves who are not trained in this, who don't necessarily feel like they are the right people to respond to someone having a mental health breakdown or a psychotic episode. And sometimes the outcomes are are dangerous for everyone involved. The Washington Post that collects police-involved shooting data found that in 2019, one in five fatal police shootings, so where a police officer shoots someone, involved a person with mental illness. Wow. So that's a really high number, and they're, they're at much higher risk of facing violence than um, those without mental illness. So when we get police involved, we just we make the situation a little riskier a lot of times. I want to zoom out from New York in particular and think about, you know, other states or just kind of where involuntary holds stand across the country. I mean, I think California has a pretty well-known policy um, and, and different states handle this different ways. It's often handled at the state level. But 
Is there a difference in what we're seeing across the country? Like, is this New York policy an outlier? Um, Are there trends we're seeing? What's going on? So there are involuntary commitment laws in all 50 states that allow officials to take individuals and forcibly bring them to a psychiatric hospital. There are also involuntary outpatient commitment laws in 47 of the 50 states where someone can be forced to attend outpatient treatment. And if they don't, then they are involuntarily committed to an inpatient ward. So this is a super common law. It's in place everywhere. And we're seeing it being used more often. So there is a study in 2020 from UCLA that looked at 25 different states and found that the use of involuntary psychiatric holds was growing faster than the population by a Mm. rate of three to one. So we're putting more people into these involuntary holds than we used to. So one thing with involuntary commitment is that even if people, you know, don't want it, it's involuntary, they can and are still charged for it. The hospital has to charge someone for for keeping them. And so if patients have insurance, sometimes their insurance will cover it or they'll get, you know, copay or coinsurance. If they're uninsured, then, you know, they're still getting stuck with these really large bills. Depending on how many days they're in involuntary commitment, that can rack up really, really quickly. And, you know, we know from studies that medical debt can be a reason that people can't qualify for apartments or cars or loans or, you know, in some cases do end up being homeless. So in some ways, you know, these these issues are tied together and can can negatively reinforce one another, too. Oh, wow. I uh, Is there any theories on the trends behind that? Like what's going on with that? There are a few different um, you know, ideas different folks have. It, it is really hard to pin down the sort of large trend over time. Um, but one thing that constantly comes up is underfunding and, and almost you know, decreased funding when you think about inflation for mm. community-based mental health services. So as we have fewer and fewer you know, places that can keep folks in their homes or in their communities with mental health treatment, then you end up with more folks on the street. You end up with more crisis, right? If people are not getting treatment before they're at a point of crisis, then you end up with family members calling 911 or you end up with them going to the emergency room, which is not equipped to handle mental health emergencies generally. And they could have to stay there for you know weeks or we've heard cases of kids having to stay there months because getting a pediatric psychiatric bed, there's a huge shortage and it can just take forever for that to open up. And and thinking of the funding, in Washington, the Mental Health Reauthorization Act is underway. It, it has bipartisan support and we'll likely see it tacked onto the omnibus bill. But what does, what does that do? That will reauthorize a bunch of programs that um, provide mental health services in schools, in the community. And it, I think this year, actually, we have seen more federal investment in mental health than we have in a long time. Some of that comes from the you know, Reauthorization Act, if that's passed. But even before that, we've seen funding through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. So this was the largest gun violence legislation, but actually just had mm. a ton of federal support for mental health programs. So there's like $750 million for crisis intervention, which um, can include things like mental health or drug courts. There's $500 million for school-based mental health services, and then just a host of other things for community behavioral health clinics and telemental health and all that. We also saw funding uh, like $400 million from the Biden administration for the 988 suicide hotline. 
an alternative to 911. There was funding to staff up the call centers that take those calls and, and make sure they can respond. And in some cities, they're using it for mobile crisis response teams. So I think this year, and maybe because of the recognition of the importance of mental health after COVID-19 and, and the number of people that are affected, we're seeing more funding to that. But I think it's really hard in a year or even two years to reverse what has been decades of underfunding. After the break, the challenges to mental health policy beyond underfunding. We're back and we're talking to Kaiser Health News reporter Aneri Patani about mental health policy. Aneri, right before the break, we were talking about underfunding and there's Another challenge to mental health that I would love to get into, and it's this idea of substance abuse as a mental health issue. That narrative and thought process is is fairly new. Why have we seen that change? So that is definitely a shift that we're seeing in, in recent times. And some of that comes from a DSM, which is the manual that psychiatrists, psychologists use to give folks uh, mental health diagnoses, substance use is now in there as a as a mental health disorder. And so some of that has really shaped the way we talk about it. But when you ask about sort of federal policies on mental health, I think there have been some big ones over the years, but a lot of times this is really at, at the state level. So one of the biggest, you know, mental health acts nationally was the Parity Act in 2008 that tried to ensure that insurance coverage for mental illness or substance use treatment would be comparable to insurance coverage for medical treatment. But enforcement of that is pretty much left at the state level. So it's state departments of insurance that enforce that. And when we talk about funding or which psychiatric hospitals exist or behavioral crisis centers exist, a lot of that varies state to state. The commitment laws vary state to state. So this is very much um, like a lot of things in our country, much more of a state and local issue in some ways than it is federal. I think in the past, we've seen a lot of uh, treatment facilities treat mental health and substance use very separately. So I've talked to families where, you know, an individual maybe um, was dealing with severe anxiety or or bipolar disorder or something, and the individual started self-medicating. And then they developed an addiction to either alcohol or some, some other drug. And what happens when that person goes to seek treatment, maybe first their family takes them to a mental health treatment facility, a residential facility. And during the sort of intake evaluation, the facility is asking them all these questions, and it comes up that the person uh, uses drugs. Then the facility might say, oh, sorry, like, we're not equipped to handle substance use. Like, you need to go to a detox facility Mm -hmm. or a residential rehab. So then the family will go there. But then the evaluation process over there will say, oh, wait, like you're dealing with bipolar disorder or some sort of mental illness. We're not equipped to handle that. You have to go get that treated first. So I think a lot of people got caught in that and were left with nothing and no place to go for treatment. So I think we are seeing that change over time with more facilities understanding, you know, they often call it co-occurring disorders or dual diagnosis where we need to treat mental health and substance use together. And so I think we're seeing more reframing around that, but it's, it's a slower, newer process. So, Anari, I'm I'm curious, how often are people who experience mental illness involved in the policy surrounding mental illness? Not 
Very often. I think Mm. like a lot of subjects, the individuals who are most affected are sometimes left out of this conversation. And instead, we have a lot of representation from academics, from researchers. We especially have a lot of representation from family members. Mm. And this is, of course, important. You know, they are individuals who are very much impacted by this issues. They are often the caregivers when our you know, systems are underfunded and, and there's nowhere else to turn. It's family members who are dealing with this. But what I think we've seen reflected is the rise of some of these more involuntary commitment type laws where the idea is to keep the individual safe, but it maybe is not centered around the individual's autonomy. So when we do hear from people with lived experience of mental health or substance use, um, there's often a pushback against some of these laws because they're really centered around the family members' concerns of how do I get this person into treatment and how do I keep them safe and how do I you know, make sure someone's looking after them versus the individual's concerns, which sometimes are more like, how do I live the life that I want to live? How do I take medications if they make me feel better but have the ability to decide not to if they don't or sort of other things that have to do more with their individual experience. And so when they are not part of the lawmaking process, we see different policies come out. I think of how we think of addiction or even coming out of COVID and the isolation everyone has felt and the toll that that can take on mental health. Are there things we should be thinking about differently that like maybe fall under mental health policy that we don't realize do or like I'm I'm just it's just so fascinating to me how this intersects with so many so many other other policies. Yeah, I think mental health policy could be very very broad if we wanted it to be. And mm-hmm. and maybe the, you know, widespread experience with COVID is a good way to look at it where mental health assistance can come from workplaces. And how our workplaces treat us in terms of the amount we're working or um, discrimination or biases that people face, especially from marginalized communities, can impact our mental health. When we talk about suicide prevention, there's actually a lot of studies showing that to make a big difference on that, you need to affect economic policy because Mm -hmm. making a livable minimum wage, having a job are huge elements that impact mental health. When we're talking about the growth in the substance use space, um, There are large sums of money right now going to states for opioid settlement cases. And the way that money is going to be used can affect both substance use treatment and mental health treatment. So I think there is really a wide lens that a lot of different areas of our lives could be considered mental health policy. And per the research, if we want to make an impact, we need to step outside of the medical realm and just having medical policies on mental health and talk about, you know, housing and jobs and racism, all these other things. What does the way we treat mental health in this country say about how we treat health care in this country? I think our treatment of mental health in this country is very reflective, often, of the way our medical system works, in that a lot of it is driven by finances. So mental health care is often expensive. Psychiatric wards um, in hospitals are are expensive. They're not money makers. They're not your elective surgeries. They're not, you know, knee or hip replacements to run well. They require a high staff to patient ratio. And so we actually see a lot of hospitals closing their psychiatric facilities, um, especially private facilities. We see, therefore, more people being funneled to public mental health hospitals 
but there are not as many. It's hard to staff them. And I think this is reflective of healthcare overall. You know, a lot of our medical facilities are going to grow the things that bring in money to them and shut down those that don't, even if there is a large need for for the mental health facilities. What other changes in mental health policy do you see on the horizon? What what are people sort of chatting about or getting excited about when it comes to this policy? I think the biggest one right now is telehealth. We saw Mm. telehealth restrictions uh, hugely lifted during COVID. Things like, can people have uh, phone visits or video visits? Can they speak with a provider who's in a different state? A lot of those things were sort of eased during COVID. And for mental health and, you know, substance use treatment in particular, we saw a lot of people taking advantage of that. It did not solve accessibility, of course, but it improved accessibility for a lot of people. So now as people are thinking the public health emergency is going to come to an end, some of those restrictions could go back into place. And so I think there is a lot of uh, concern and a lot of talk about how do we make these changes permanent? If they're helping people get more treatment, then you know, should we and can we make them permanent? All right. Aneri Patani, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to Amanda Postilnik and Aneri Patani for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. And our editorial director is A.M. Hall. Special thank you to Mary Giliberti and Mental Health America for additional research for this episode. I'm your host, John Quinn Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>